<clears throat> does are there people applying this in a way because of replacement theology that they see us taking the place of, of Israel? Yes. Have you heard that term, replacement theology? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, very on point question. Uh, people will apply. The, the promises made to the Jewish people, whether through Abraham or David or the New Covenant uh, in Ezekiel uh, and Jeremiah and, uh, and other prophets, they'll apply them to the church because they believe the church is now, or excuse me, the Jews are now um, set aside by God and God is working with the church. And so the fulfillment of these covenants has to happen in the church. Number three, the purpose of God's program is soteriological. There's a Greek word there, soter, um, savior. And so for them, the purpose of God's program is for Christ to save people. Bringing people to salvation. Anybody here have a problem with that? I don't have a problem with that. Now, I disagree. I don't think that's the major reason for God's action and and we'll contrast that in a moment but man you bet you know sing the praises of our savior you bet uh, is he worthy yes he's worthy oh man I almost came out of our out of our pew or our seat today when uh, the the chorale sang is he worthy man yes he's worthy and salvation of people is certainly uh, at the at the heart of our living God. I think there's a there's a broader purpose than the salvation of people. Okay. Yes. Probably too big a question, but on You're not known for those questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on number one, um, how does Yes, I, I can make a stab at it. I, I think they would say that their faith was expressed through compliance with God and the revelation that God gave them. So whether it was through the Mosaic Covenant, um, Paul says uh, that they were all baptized through the Red Sea. Um, you know, they all identified with the Lord um, as, a, as a redeemed people coming out of bondage. So... Um, that's a brief answer to your question. Anybody else want to speak to that? Yes, go ahead. I would, I would point to the, the scripture that says that Abraham believed God credited to him for righteousness. Whose sons we have become because we believe in the Lord. Yes. So there are connections. Definitely there are connections. And the examples, uh, the examples of the patriarchs and so forth. Okay, now, dispensationalism is highlighted here. It's, the, it's the, in the black letters. So we're going to talk about dispensationalism for a little bit. Dispensational theology includes three concepts. Okay, we talked about three for the covenant theologians. Let's talk about three for the dispensationalists. The church is distinct from Israel. The purpose of God's program is doxological. 
Doxa is a Greek word for glory. That is, the purpose of God's program, the, the reason God is active in human history, is to bring glory back to himself. And boy, do I want to jump up and down on this because I've written an article on the gospel uh, in the canonical drama. That is, the reason God is at work here uh, is that he lost fame. He lost subjects. And then that angelic subject that defected from him tempted and deceived and humanity went with him. And God is about the business of bringing glory back to himself, rightful glory back to himself. This is dispensational thought. <clears throat> uh, this is where um, Dallas Seminary, uh, I think, is the flagship for this school of thought. And uh, the glory days of DTS uh, championed this concept well, very well. Okay, the Bible is to be interpreted literally, grammatically, historically, literarily, that is, normally, the, the way that we would read any piece of literature. So the distinctiveness of the, uh, the distinctiveness of the church rises from its nature, its origin, the historical time period. The nature of the church is not racial or territorial or ceremonial like Judaism. The church encompasses all people of faith in Jesus, God's Son, the Lamb of God, the High Priest in heaven. People need not be Jewish to become Christians. That was the issue in Acts 15, wasn't it, at the Jerusalem Council? Do these Gentile people have to conform to Jewish practices in order to be accepted in the church? No, no. So just as covenant theology derives its name from postulating the enactment by God of several covenants, so dispensationalism gets its name from postulating multiple dispensations or divinely administered eras or economies. In these economies, God puts forward a standard for man's compliance which ends in failure. That is, men always seem to blow it. They always fail when God puts a test in front of them. The economies are innocence, conscience, civil government, promise or patriarchal, law, grace, and kingdom. Often these are reduced to three major ones, law, church, and kingdom, or law, grace, and kingdom. <clears throat> However, in my opinion, and I think many of the professors at DTS would say the same thing, the big issue is not whether you see different covenants or different dispensations. The big issue is how we interpret the scripture. If we can agree on a methodology of interpreting the scripture, then we will end up with either dispensationalism or covenant theology. It depends on your, on your hermeneutic. It depends on the principles of interpretation that you use in understanding the scriptures because those principles lead you to understand the scriptures and then putting those scriptures together puts us in this school or that school. Comment or question? Yes? Did this point you talk the new and the old and the new? This was safe, I think, what they, are they not kind of basically 
making more out of something than they should. But, you know, you have these different dispensations that they did in the Old Testament time, which are basically like the law was given as a tutor to bring us to Christ. Mm -hmm. God had to, his plan from the beginning was, was faith. But he had to install things in there along the way just to bring us, to keep people on, online until he brought us to the new covenant, which was you know, the main thing. Uh, I think dispensation, I mean, it's, all, it's not even 200 years old. It started with John Nelson Darby and it's in the 1820s, 1830s from a conference that he went to in England and he heard a guy named Edward Irving uh, preaching who was a guy like kind of emotional, charismatic. He's kind of like a Charles Finney of America. And he was teaching this, you know, this stuff that he had got from a young lady in this, one of his meetings named Margaret McDonald, just a teenager, 19, 20 years old, who went into a trance and was given a, for over an hour, just saying all kinds of things. And one of the things she said was that the church would not go through the tribulation, it would be raptured. And Edward Irving picked that up, and you know, he was a famous preacher there, and he started teaching that, and at this conference that was sponsored by a lady power court in the 1830s, she, you know, a lot of people came there. John Darby, who was kind of disillusioned with Anglican, you know, that kind of church, he was there, and he picked that up, and he liked that. And he started writing, and he was very, he was a very polished writer. He wasn't so much a theologian, but he was a, very, a language expert. And he started, you know, purporting that and writing that very well. He came to America several times and started, you know, preaching out here. He started the Plymouth Brethren over there, and it kind of took off here. And then Schofield, he was discipled by a guy who Darby was sponsored by a Presbyterian minister named Brooks here in St. Louis. Schofield was discipled by him. And Schofield brought, came out with the Schofield Bible in the 1900s. In fact, he started the Schofield Bible Church right here in Dallas. You can go see it on Abram's Road. He was the one who really pushed dispensationalism. And the thing about Schofield is he was kind of shady. He was a uh, attorney general of the state of Kansas in when he was only 29, one of the youngest ones in the state in the country. And he, within a year, was, had to, was removed because of a lot of scandal. He came under the tutelage of, of Brooks, this Presbyterian minister, who kind of trained him. And then he started his church in Dallas. It was a congregational church, actually, in 1883, and was there for 12 years. And he went to, after that, he went up to New England, then he came back in 19, I think, 03. And he was still kind of, he started styling himself as a, he put his name C.I. Schofield, Doctor of Divinity. And he did not have a doctor. In fact, he had no formal, real formal training. But he was styling himself like that, and he wrote the Schofield Bible with all, and he'd take a, a section of scripture, and then he put a lot of notes, and he was very adamant about dispensationalism. Yeah. And he, it was, while he was here in the 1900s, that Lewis Perry Schaefer, the guy who started Dallas Seminary, was discipled by him. Now, Schaefer was a more quiet, intelligent, more on the level kind of guy. 
Mm -hmm. And he started uh, Dallas Center in 1924 because Scofield was kind of pushing you know, for that kind of stuff. We need more conservative type minister of Bible colleges because a lot of the seminaries around the country were going liberal. Mm -hmm. And Sperry Schaefer started Dallas Seminary and he was there, I think, until 1952, 53. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a good man. Mm -hmm. But the thing with dispensation, it was, it, it was Darby's work. He took the Bible and he broke it down into these sections where God is working as he, and, I, and I'm not against dispensation, but I think he was kind of a little too much on it. Okay, so Matt, you've raised so many things. Um, <clears throat> and I, I don't know that our tape heard all of your issues. I'm going to address a couple of them just briefly. Um, <laughs> I, I, we want to be uh, gracious as we look at history and as we look at theologians. If you look at a person's life deep enough, you're going you're gonna to be disappointed, probably. Um, many of us don't have stellar lives. Um, and I'm, I'm aware of some of what you've said about Darby, but not all of it. And some of what you've said about Schofield... Um, uh, I think we want to look, we want to measure the person by his, his product, by his uh, sincerity of faith and the legacy, uh, the legacy that he leaves. Um, we, just like in the craze right now of defunding the police because of a couple of bad police officers or a few bad police officers, we want to be careful not to throw out the police because of a couple of bad ones. And the same thing I would say about dispensationalism, the same thing I would say about covenant theology, um, about reformed theolo uh, theologians, uh, about Calvinists, about Arminians, and, and systematic theology is not my field. But I, I think we want to be careful uh, to discern what's valuable in what a person teaches, hold on to that, and we can set aside those things that we understand to be not valuable. Um, the other thing I want to say is that dispensationalism talks about these seven, some, some postulate eight dispensations. That's not what drives me about dispensationalism. In fact, I've never taught the seven dispensations, and I don't plan to. As, as they are presented by Clarence Larkin or Darby or, or Schofield or, or others. What drives me is their hermeneutic. It's how they approach the scriptures. And they do so in a normal, literal, grammatical, historical manner. And if we, if we understand the scriptures through that manner, through that methodology, then I believe we're, we will understand that the Lord Jesus will come back before the millennium. We're going to talk about all of this. And uh, that he will set up the Davidic kingdom that was promised to David, uh, his greater son. And he will bring the world to its spiritual apex before Satan is loosed. He, he will be bound during the millennium. He'll be loosed and um, deceive the world once again and then be ultimately judged and 
the world will go into the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, and the eternal state. So all of that, um, because of the hermeneutic we use, because of the method of interpretation that we use. Okay, the church began after Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, on the Jewish feast day, Pentecost, when Christ sent the Holy Spirit from heaven to his believers, followers on earth. Now, mind you, some people look at the beginning of the church at a different time, maybe later in the uh, historical record of Acts. But most, uh, I believe, would say the church began on the day of Pentecost uh, after Christ's resurrection and ascension. It started as a sect within Judaism and then was quickly ostracized. So the church receives Jesus as the Messiah uh, of the Jews and the suffering servant. Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 52, 53. But Judaism rejects Jesus' claim. Judaism began with the patriarchs, was solidified under Moses, who received the law and delivered it to the people of Israel, and had a historical presence of 2,000 years, which included ceremonial priests, judges, kings, and prophets. So you see, I'm building a case for the distinctiveness between Israel and the church. The church is composed of believers regenerated and baptized by the Holy Spirit and in water who observe regularly the memorial table. The church enacts the commission given by its head, Jesus Christ, to go and make disciples of all peoples. Um, and the church awaits his coming as a bridegroom to take his bride to heavenly habitations prepared by him, John 14. Certainly there are many correspondences between the church and Israel, such as God sending people, blood atonement, faith, including a historical overlap. So the church and Israel overlap. The church comes out of Israel. Israel is still in existence as a people, and even had, they have their homeland now, as of 1947. Um, but the Jews would never identify the church as Judaism, nor would Christians identify themselves as traditional Jews. The two entities recognize fundamental differences between themselves. Okay, dispensationalists are dispensationalists by the hermeneutic they employ. This hermeneutic is literal, grammatical, historical, and literary. Let me talk about that. A literal hermeneutic takes the word for what it says. If John sees a beast coming out of the sea, that's what he saw. He saw a beast coming out of the, out of the sea. That was a vision. He saw that. Okay, now, the question is, well, what does that beast represent, or who is that beast? And why does it come out of the sea? Because in the next chapter, he'll see another beast coming up from the land. What's the difference? Well, we'll talk about that when we get to Revelation 13 and, and 14. But that's what he saw. Okay? So we need to understand, you know, when Jesus turned the water into wine, it was wine. Yep, that's a normal, literal hermeneutic. That's the way we understand it. When Jesus walked on the water of the Sea of Galilee, he was walking on the water. Just like Elisha threw the stick into the river, the Jordan River, 
to retrieve the axe head, Jesus was floating on the water like that axe head. He, he had power over the, uh, the natural uh, elements. That's what, you know, we believe that. Yes, Fred. If we could just seize upon those two examples, for example, water to wine, walking on water, what would be the difference then between what a covenant theologian and a dispensationalist would say about those? Does the covenant guy say, well, that's symbolic, while the dispensational guy said, no, that really happened? Well, just seizing on those two examples, is there a difference between covenant and dispensation? I think on those two examples, they would agree. Okay, but there are other statements where they would diverge. And I'm, I'm going to show you uh, months down the road. <laughs> I, I'm going to show you a slide where uh, figurative interpreters, how they would understand a passage, where uh, a, traditional, a, a traditionalist would understand the passage, where a skeptic, um, uh, a naturalist would understand the passage, and I'll I'll make that contrast. Or you're into you're. Do covenant people are, are covenant people? Do they tend to be more figurative? They do. Yes. That, yes. That yes. Would be yes. They do. They tend to take yes. So uh, when we read in Jeremiah 33 or Ezekiel 37 or 34 uh, about God uh, and the new covenant, although it says God will. Uh, put the the law in the hearts of the people of Israel and the people of Judah, Jeremiah 33, they will take that to mean the church. Okay, so that's that's where we will we'll see the divergence. Great question, but I'm not going to answer that for months. It's it's. I'll hold you to it. So are you saying that Jeremiah passage, we don't have God's law written in our hearts through the Holy Spirit? Not like they will. Not like they will in the New Covenant. Right. Wow. Uh-huh. I thought that was a wonderful passage that applies to us. It is a wonderful passage. And and the people of Israel and Judah. Okay, so let, let's, let's go there. John, thank you for raising it. Let's go to Jeremiah 33 and just look at the passage. I'm sorry, it's 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. This is perhaps uh, the passage that most people would go to first for the new covenant. I think Ezekiel says some very complimentary things that, that dovetail nicely with this. Okay, so this is Jeremiah 31. 31 to 34, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Covenant theologians would say he's doing that with the church today. He talked to the people of Israel about it, but he's actually doing it with the church today. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel 
After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each uh, each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will, will remember their sin no more. There will not be an impact class in the kingdom. We won't need that. Okay? Because everybody's going to have the law written on their heart. We won't need teachers. Okay? Now, do, do we have the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit enlighten us and, and help us understand the scriptures? Most definitely. But it's going to be different, folks, than, than what we are experiencing right now. Give me a, give me a few weeks, okay, Linda. <laughs> um, so, in other words, when Christ comes back, uh, he won't be absent, okay? He'll be here, and he will usher in a period of understanding, which is unlike anything the, the world has seen so far. As good as the church is, as many of the graces. Uh, the blessings, uh, Ephesians 1 and so forth, that God has given to us as believers. Um, from this kind of description, I believe the, uh, the believers in the kingdom period are going to be superior to us in, in their walk with God. I think uh, they will not struggle with the mastery of sin in their lives like we do. I think that they will have an unimpeded uh, knowledge of God. It won't be uh, like Jonathan Murphy uh, encouraged us today to spend time at the feet of Christ and time with God this week. They won't need to. Is this after Jesus comes back? Yes, after he comes back and he, and he establishes the Davidic covenant and um, the lion uh, lays down with the lamb. and. Um, the uh, the animosity what, what uh, that's probably the wrong word but um, between animals and between people and animals all of that conflict all of all of that will be gone so the world will enter into a golden age and um, it it won't it won't have what what we're seeing today yes Matt you know, if you read Jonathan Edwards he, he kind of talked about that he was post-millennial. Yes, yes. He, was, he, had, he did no commentaries except on Revelation. And he, you see a lot of that stuff. He was a brilliant man. Yes. But he was wrong. Okay, so, so Jonathan Edwards would be a reformed theologian. And uh, brilliant, yes. Major theologian. Uh, still used as kind of a a, a, a broad, basic theologian for Reformed theology today. Uh, uh, and he is cited often. Is he wrong in some of the things that he taught? Yeah, I think he, he is wrong. But uh, that's I wouldn't go to him for those areas where I think he's wrong. I would go to him for those areas where I think he's right and appreciate the truth from the scriptures that he systematized so well. Yes, John? Okay, so when Paul says in Ephesians, uh, it, it, uh, 
Remember that at that time, you who were separated from Christ, excluded the citizenship in Israel and foreign to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, etc. Yes. So you're saying there were still two groups in eternity, the Jews will be this way, and the church will be this way? In eternity? Or in the millennial kingdom? No, no. Some will have the, uh, the Jeremiah 31. Okay. Okay, great question. Uh, in in the millennial kingdom, in that 1,000-year period, and we're going to talk about Revelation 20 at length, um, in that period, there will be uh, restored Israel. Okay, and I, I was just reading this week, um, Isaiah uses the figure of the nations being nursemaids, bringing the children of Israel back to the land. So all of the scattered Jews will be will be brought back to their land via these pagan nations. They will understand who God is, who Christ is, and they will say, we're going to bring your people back to you, for you. It, it'll be a beautiful thing. Um, so Israel will be restored. It will be the mountain... Um, to, to which all of the people stream, Isaiah 2, Micah 4, and it, it will be the center, the governmental center of the world, and Christ will be the head of that kingdom. Now, uh, the church, we will reign with Christ as he reigns on earth. And we will be his administrative assistants. We, we will be his servants in that uh, governmental um, uh, enterprise. I think, I think I, I'm running out of my, uh, my answer to your question. <laughs> okay. Kit, before you go yes. On, going back to Jeremiah there on verse 34. Yes. Uh, for they shall all know me. Yes. Is that just talking about the Jews? I really thought that was everybody. Okay, so, so Linda, look at the passage. To whom is it talking? Uh-huh, the people of Israel and the people of Judah. So he's making that promise to them. Okay. Okay. Now, we have a we have a problem because in the New Testament, they'll refer to this new covenant. Go to the book of Hebrews, chapters 8 and 9 and so forth. And he talks about the new covenant. Um, and applications are made to new covenant, or to new covenant, or to new testament people via this passage. So that's where our hermeneutic really becomes important. And that's where covenant theologians, dispensationalists will will differ on their understanding of the passages. That's why it's a little bit confusing. It is. It, it is confusing. I was just going to mention real quickly the, the, the Dallas Seminary dispensationalists would say, there are, from the rules of hermeneutics, that, and I knew her, I knew him, hermeneutic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and one of Herman's rules was that there's one interpretation, but there's many applications. And that's where we sometimes, we can overwork parables, we can overwork things. Yes. It's one interpretation. Yes. That was spoken to the Jews. But yes. there's many applications, because we will know the Lord too. 
Yes. Right? So I'm just saying, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul went into detail mm -hmm. about the Jews. Zechariah yes. says, they will see him whom they have pierced. Yes. It, but there's distinctively a difference between us and the Jews. Okay. Very astute comment. So we are all about finding the original author's intended meaning when we interpret the Bible. We want to know what Isaiah meant when Isaiah wrote his prophecy. Same thing about the Apostle John when he wrote his gospel or his letters or the book of the Revelation. We want to know what the original author intended to communicate. That's, that's the interpretation. Applications are multitude. You know, we can come out uh, with, with great application. Jonathan Murphy is so astute at, at making applications from the stories that he tells. You know, we walked out of the, the uh, sanctuary this morning with a, with a picture of a child clinging to his father that helps us understand our, commun our communion with God. It was masterful. Okay? Um, so applications are many, but interpretation is one. We want to get to that singular interpretation. If, if a passage has multiple interpretations, then it has no interpretation. It has no meaning. If a passage has multiple meanings, it has no meaning. Okay? We're, and we'll probably talk about that in the future. Okay. This, uh, covenant theologians do not deny that God's program brings glory to himself, yet they assert God's premier purpose to be soteriological, saving man from sin. And we relish that, don't we? We love that, that God is all about saving us. We, you know, we rejoice, and uh, uh, that really speaks to us. Dispensationalists emphasize that God's plan of salvation by grace through faith unifies all dispensations and is a major endeavor of the Trinity, just like creation was. All three persons of the Trinity were involved in creation. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in man's salvation. But they assert the premier purpose in all God's activities to be doxological, manifesting the glory of God. And so I want to make a comment, and then Matt, I'll take your question. So it's not either or. It's not that God doesn't have the purpose of saving people and also of bringing glory to himself. It's both. That in the process of saving man from himself, from his sin, from deserved wrath, from his estrangement from God, but in, in doing that, God is uh, using his attributes, displaying the wonder of his character, and Satan is thinking, I blew it. I walked away from the perfect, loving, holy, just, omnipotent, infinite God for myself. And here is God rescuing man for his glory. Man, did I make a bad choice. That is the gospel in the canonical drama. It's, it's the story of God, angels, and men and it comes back to the glory of God. Okay, we're going to end there. Um, let's pray.
Father, thank you for uh, our time together. Thank you for these good people and their understanding of your word. As we talk about some of these issues, uh, frankly, they may be new to us. They may be uh, beyond our current understanding. Help us, Father, uh, to learn together. Help us also to grow together. Help us to have a hope that's living and, and secure, um, grounded firmly in our Savior. We pray in his name. We look forward to his coming. Amen. Amen.